Well, if you have your Bibles, please open them to the book of Psalms this morning, the book of Psalms. And I'd like to begin reading from the last Psalm, Psalm 150, as we continue our look at what it means to sing to one another in the local church and how it relates to the Christian life and the ministry of the one another. Psalm 150 says, Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Well, for me, I guess it all begins back in eighth grade, which was a very difficult year for me. Anybody here really like junior high? Okay, junior high is kind of tough for a lot of us. In eighth grade, I was, uh, I think I shared this with you, um, I was the second least popular kid in my school. When I say, Dan, how do you know that? Well, it's real simple. Uh, I knew the least popular kid in my school, and I was his best friend, so that made me the second least popular kid. And in eighth grade, you count all those things and know exactly where you stand. But being the second least popular kid in my school during that year, um, I was invited to be a part of a garage band in eighth grade. And it wasn't much. It was just three guys in a garage, and we didn't have much talent. But we did have some pretty loud amplifiers. And we never made it big, and we never got beyond eighth grade. But we did have one defining high moment, and that was we were given one gig, and that was we were allowed to play at lunchtime at our junior high. So we got out there. We only knew one or two songs, so we played the same songs for 30 minutes straight over and over. But the... Um, the sad part was the administration wouldn't let us play in the area where the students ate, so we actually played all the way across the field, and um, every once in a while, some random kid would come out and <laughs> kind of look at us like, what are you guys doing? And uh, I'm sure they were thinking, hey, that's the second least popular kid in school. He's, uh, he has, he's actually pretty cool, so... I guess you could say I've had an interest in music, but I never really understood the meaning of music until I became a Christian. It wasn't until I became a Christian that I really began to see the beauty of music, the purpose of music. Before I became a Christian, music was just something to do. It was just an activity. It was just noise. It was just a way to burn off excess energy. It was just something that was fun, but not really meaningful. But it wasn't until I became a Christian that I really began to see the beauty of music. The music can be an expression of our worship to God. The music can be a means of expressing our love and our devotion for the Lord Jesus Christ. The music can actually be a means to build up the saints and to edify the church. It can even be a means to teach theology and to place theology into the deepest part of our hearts 
biblical truths that we remember. I'll confess to you that if you were to ask me, Dan, can you quote four lines from Martin Luther's catechism? I wouldn't be able to do it. I want to know what Martin Luther's catechism says, but I could quote to you four lines from Martin Luther's hymn, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, a helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Say, Dan, why can you quote the hymn but you can't quote the catechism? Well, it's for the simple reason that we sing the hymn and that singing has taught me those truths and has put that truth deep in my heart where it is part of me now. Music is so much more than noise in the Christian perspective. It is so much more than burning off excess energy or setting a mood or a tone. Music has a purpose in the body of Christ. And that's why we looked at last week. That's why the church sings. That's why everywhere you go in the world today, you'll find the church singing. That's why everywhere you go in redemptive history, from Old Testament to New Testament, you'll find the church singing. And that is why Paul says in Ephesians 5, verse 18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw last week that Christian singing is a response. It is a response to all that God has done for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he has forgiven us, he has adopted us, he has redeemed us, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And because of all that we have received by grace through faith in the gospel, we sing. How can we not sing after all that Christ has done for us? We also saw that Christian singing is an expression. It is an expression of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. And the result of that is singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit points us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And our hearts are satisfied with the greatness of who He is. And the result and the fruit of that is heartfelt singing unto the Lord. And thirdly, we saw that Christian singing is a ministry. Paul says, don't just sing to God, but sing to one another. Address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Make your singing a mutual ministry. Come together and encourage one another, exhort one another. As you sing to the Lord, minister to one another and teach one another truths of who God is through your singing. Colossians 3.16 indicates that singing can be a form of teaching. Paul says there, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The teaching parallels the singing. As we sing, we are teaching one another. And As commentator Gordon Fee once said, Show me a church's songs and I will show you their theology. Because singing is a form of of gathering around the truth of God's Word and internalizing the truth for ourselves. It is one of the one another's in Scripture. And last week we answered the question, why do we sing? This morning we want to take that a step further and we want to talk about how do we sing? How do we sing? 
what are the characteristics of biblical singing in the church of Jesus Christ? And for the answer to that question, we want to look at the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms, which is God's own hymn book of praise. The book, which is God's own divinely authored hymn book of songs, which were meant to give expression to the hearts of the redeemed as they live their life in worship to God. It has been well said that the Psalms are in the heart of the Bible because they express the heart of the Christian life. They express the heart of the Christian experience. In this book we find 150 songs in which we find the psalmist seeking God in virtually every area of life. These are not just songs that were sung in the temple, in the religious place. These are not just songs that were sung in a time of corporate gathering, even though that's included. But in this song, in these songs we find melodies that were sung in the heartbreaking wilderness where David was alone and afraid for his life. We find songs that were sung when the psalmist was doubting God and speaking to himself. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why are you in such despair within me? We find songs in this psalm book, this uh, collection of songs that express the heart's experience and emotion in virtually every arena of the Christian life. And that's why the psalms are so precious to the Christian. That's why the Psalms have been, throughout generations and throughout history, have been the most precious section of Scripture in terms of direct applicability and relevance to our emotions and how we experience the Christian life. There isn't a single season in church history where the Psalms have not spoken with great blessing and great comfort and great power into the lives of the local church. And as we survey the Psalms, we want to gather together a collection, a theology, if you will, of how the church is to sing. How the church is to sing, not only corporately, but individually. Not only when we gather together, but as we go and live our lives during the week. Martin Luther said of the Psalms that they are the Bible in miniature, in the Psalms, we look into the heart of all the saints. We seem to gaze into fair pleasure gardens. We seem to gaze into heaven itself indeed, where blooms and sweet, refreshing, gladdening flowers of holy and happy thoughts about God and all His benefits. And John Calvin said of the Psalms, What various and resplendent riches are contained in this treasury! It were difficult to find words to describe. There is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. And it's no wonder that Christians have read the Psalms and loved the Psalms and have treasured the Psalms throughout church history. The famous evangelist Billy Graham read five Psalms a day for the most of his Christian life because he said that the Psalms taught him how to relate to God it is said when missionary William Carey lay dying in India that he read the Psalms as he prepared himself for entrance into heaven. When God spared his life and he lived another 11 years, he insisted that the Psalms be read at his future funeral as a testimony to its soul-sustaining power. And Henry Martin, another missionary to India, saturated himself with the Psalms. 
His journals were filled with notations which referenced the Psalms. Henry Martin committed Psalm 119 to memory, and he regularly rehearsed its truth to his heart. It's no wonder that this book is so treasured by Christians. In fact, I would guess to say that most of you, if in your Bibles right now, you would have some sections of the Bible that are a little more crispier than the others. But in your Bible, the Psalms are not one of those crispy sections. If we did a survey of the Bibles here at Cornerstone, we'd probably find that every single one of us has a Bible which the Psalms are well-worn and thumbed through because it is the section of Scripture that describes the heart of the Christian experience. And there is an immediate applicability, an immediate connection between our lives and the Psalms that really doesn't need much advanced preparation. We go to this section of Scripture no matter what we're going through, in joy and in sorrow, in faith and in doubt. It said that the great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones sat down one Sunday for breakfast, and in that quiet moment he read Psalm 42. And he was so struck with Psalm 42 that he turned over his napkin and outlined the psalm and preached it that very morning. And in the weeks that followed, he continued to preach on Psalm 42, and those sermons became his all-time best-selling book, Spiritual Depression, a book that has ministered to countless around the world. Christians love the Psalms. We love the Psalms. They speak to us in our everyday life. They meet us in the situations of life that we face every day. And they connect us with God in the midst of the practical situations that every one of us experience. What I love about the Psalms and what I find so refreshing about the Psalms is is the brutal honesty in which these songs speak. If you read these songs, you will not find sugar-coated Christianity. You will not find some Christian platitudes. You'll not just find meaningless words. But sometimes the Psalms are so brutally honest that Christians have even struggled with the rawness of it. The Psalms teach us that sometimes the Christian life is not a bed of roses. Sometimes we are afraid. Sometimes we are not filled with faith. We are filled with doubt. And sometimes God does not seem very close, but He seems so very far away. And our faith seems so small. And the Psalms speak with brutal honesty to these situations in life. And they seek to connect us to God even in the midst of those struggles and trials. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what I would encourage you with this morning, and some of you need to hear this this morning, is that God isn't interested, He isn't just interested in your songs when you are filled with faith but he is interested in your songs when you are struggling with doubt. He isn't just interested in your songs when you are confident in the Lord. He's interested in your songs when you're afraid and when you're lonely and when you feel your weakness. 
He isn't just interested in songs that say, praise the Lord, I rejoice in the Lord. But he's also interested in songs like Psalm 13. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? You say that's in the Bible? That's in the Psalms. And it's not the only psalm that talks that way. Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? See, maybe some of us, we're in a relationship with the Lord where we feel like we need to fake it. And when we're struggling, we need to put on a mask and we need to just say the nice Christian things. And the Psalms teach us that, no, God is interested in a relationship of authenticity and honesty. And He wants you to come to Him. He wants you to come even when you're weak, even when you're doubting, even when you're struggling, even when you feel overwhelmed with life. He wants to hear your song. And he teaches that in the book of Psalms. In the end, this book is a book that is meant to be sung. And it teaches us how, as Christians, we are to sing. How the new song gives expression in our hearts. And in this book, we want to survey it. And I just want to lay before you five characteristics of biblical singing is found in the book of Psalms. Five characteristics of not just why we sing, but how we are to sing as Christians. And let's just note these together and walk through these together. Number one, characteristics. In the Psalms, we find the balance between joyful praise and sorrowful lament. In the Psalms, we find the balance between joyful praise and Sorrowful lament. Joy and sorrow. Confidence and pain. Major key songs and minor key songs. Songs that were most likely fast tempo, celebratory, filled with joy, and then songs that were most likely slow, contemplative, meditative, even mournful. In the Psalms, we find songs of praise, songs of joy, songs of hope, songs like Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. And you all know that sometimes, in fact, many times, The Christian life is like this. We are just filled with joy and praise to the living God because He has saved us and redeemed us through the blood of Jesus Christ. And how can life be any better than to know Christ? To be filled with the Spirit and to know that we're going to heaven. And we know that many times the Christian life is like this where Our hearts are just ready to explode with songs of joy. We can't wait to get to church so that we can sing because we are bursting with praise and joy. But many times, and even for many Christians, for an extended period of time, life is not like that. 
Sometimes it's more like Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Sometimes it's like Psalm 42, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. And then he repeats it because he struggles with it again. Verse 11, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. He's talking to himself. He's trying to almost convince himself. Self, hope in God. Have faith in God. He's faithful. He's true. He's loving. But then he keeps going back to his doubt and he keeps saying, Why? Why are you so depressed? Why are you cast down? It's honest and it's real. And if you have any measure of honesty as a Christian, you know that sometimes Christian life is like, it's like that. Where you're just wrestling and you're struggling. You're saying, I know God is faithful. I know God loves me. I know God is patient. I know God is here with me. But why? Why am I so cast down? Soul, trust in God. These are minor key songs. Sometimes Christian life is even like Psalm 22, which we know that Christ quoted at the cross and yet had an immediate historical reference. The psalmist said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day and you do not answer. By night I find no rest. It's not, you see, it's not what Christians make it out to be where we just say these platitudes, we'll just trust in God and everything will be all right and just pray to God. And, and the psalmist is saying, God, I'm, I'm praying to you. I'm groaning and you're not hearing me. You seem so far away. Where are you? We find the wrestling. And you know this if you're a Christian. You know that you wrestle with the same thing because we know the truth. We know that God is there. We know that God is faithful. We look to the cross. We know that God loves us. And yet the Psalms express the humanness of it, that we do doubt in our frailty and in our weakness. And we do go back and forth. And we do have times where even though objectively we know God is near us, He subjectively seems so far away. And we cry out, where are you? Why are you so far away? John Calvin has written that there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented. The Holy Spirit is here drawn to the life. All the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexity, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. And brothers and sisters, I would just say that in these expressions, we see the kindness of God. We see the compassion of God. We see the mercy of God. We see the loving care of God. That he's not just up there and saying, hey, you know, I told you how to live the Christian life, so just go do it and just... Don't bother me, but he's interested in us. That he welcomes us as his father. And we don't need to have our acts all together to come into his presence. 
we can come as we are and we can give honest expression to our hearts. Because in the Psalms we find not just joyful songs, but sorrowful songs. Pastor Mark Dever has written, Amazingly, there are more psalms of lament than any other kind of psalm. Of the 150 psalms, 62 are complaints or laments. One-fourth of these 62 are communal laments, while three-fourths are individual laments. The psalms of lament are full of sorrow, disorientation, pain, distress, anger, and feelings of abandonment both among the community and within the individual. Sometimes these psalms even contain the most blood-curdling curses and the bitterest invective uttered in the Bible. Did you catch that? 62. 62 of 150 psalms are minor key, are songs of sorrow, not songs of joy. And it's like if you were to come in on a worship service and we were to sing six songs in our morning service and two of those were sad songs. And two of those we weren't saying rejoice in the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, but we were saying, why are you in despair, O my soul? Now that probably wouldn't be a service that you would go away saying, well, that's a service that appeals to everyone, but it would be an honest and a raw expression of the realities of the Christian life. You see, the truth is that many times Christians come to church and sing 100% happy songs, and then they start their life on Monday, and from Monday to Saturday, it's a sad song. What we're saying is that biblical singing incorporates both joyful praise and sorrowful lament. And this is just something that we want to work through as a church because we want our corporate gathering to reflect the biblical tension found in the Psalms and we want our corporate singing to reflect the individual singing that goes on throughout the week. We know that all of you are not singing 100% happy songs throughout the week and the Psalms say that's okay. In fact, that's the experience of Christians throughout generations. And you can sing your sad songs to God just as much as you can sing your happy songs to God. We looked through our songbook as a church and out of over 100 or 200 songs that are in our repertoire, we have one minor key song. And it's something that we just want to work on. In fact, in the church songs being sung today, if you look at top praise songs being sung today, you'll find predominantly 99% happy songs. And it's an area where we want to grow in because a life of genuine worship is not just a life that worships in the bright and happy times in life, but it is a life that worships in the difficult seasons of life as well. And so just understand this. Child of God, God wants you to come. He wants you to come to Him no matter where you are. And he doesn't want your fake expressions. If in your heart you're struggling and you're doubting and you're fearing, he doesn't want you to just put on a mask and go, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. He wants you to come with the honest expression of your heart 
And he has given to us in his mercy songs which sing of that experience. Let's move to a second characteristic of biblical singing found in the Psalms. In the Psalms, we find the balance between joy and sorrow. And secondly, we find the balance between transcendence and imminence. Transcendence and imminence. Now, these are theological words, but they really have a simple meaning. Transcendence is the biblical teaching that God is above his creation. And imminence is the biblical teaching that God is involved in his creation. By transcendence, we mean that God is holy, that God is sovereign, that God is set apart, that God is exalted, that God is above us, that God is incomprehensible. He is above his creation. By imminence, we mean that God is with us. He is involved. He cares. He is intimately involved in the everyday details of our lives. He knows the number of hairs on our head. He knows the number of our days. He loves us and cares for us. Transcendence is described in Exodus 15. Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. And imminence is described in Jeremiah 22:23. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far off. Transcendence, God is up there. Imminence, God is in here. Transcendence, God is high, holy, exalted. Imminence, God is intimately involved in our lives. Transcendence, God is the mighty one the great I am, the sovereign one, the self-sufficient one, the one who rules and sustains the universe, the one who created all things with the word of his power, imminence, God is the one that we can come to and say, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. In the Psalms, we find both that God is transcendent and he is imminent. He's both up there and he is in here. He is both lofty, exalted, and majestic, and he is caring, compassionate, and involved. Though he is transcendent, he is not distant. Though he is transcendent, he is not aloof or unfeeling. I can always remember, uh, I've shared this story before, my seminary professor, Dr. Roskup, who taught the prayer class at the Master Seminary. And he um, shared about how when he loses his keys, like we all lose our keys, how he won't run around fretting about it, but he'll pray. And he'll say, Lord, help me find my keys. And this is a man who prays about the world. He's praying for the restoration of Israel. He's praying for the salvation of missions, and he's praying for his keys. And he says people often tell him, well, you shouldn't pray for your keys because it's such a small thing. And he answers, well, they're all small things to God. And God cares about that I lost my keys. And I told that story in CBI, and promptly one of the men lost their keys that day. (laughs) But he had a smile on his face because he knew that God cared about his lost keys. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. God, the great I am, the awesome Lord, the sovereign God, of all the universe, the one who rules over all things, the transcendent God is so imminent and involved in our lives that we can come to him and pray about our keys. 
when you look at that, doesn't it make you say, what kind of a God is this? Doesn't it make you say, who is like this God? Doesn't it make you stand in awe of the wonder of the God's compassion and mercy that He, the Holy One, would condescend to listen to little creatures like me and you and to meet us in our everyday mundane lives? In the Psalms, we find both transcendence and imminence. Transcendence, Psalm 50, verse 1, The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. He is the Mighty One. He is the Lord, Yahweh, the self-existent One, the Great I Am. And then we find imminence. Psalm 61, verse 1, Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. In Psalm 42, 1, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God. Is there anyone more beautiful than this God? Is there anyone more lovely than a God like this? Is there anyone who would capture our affections in a greater way than a God who is both the mighty one and yet is the one that we come and say, give ear to my words. Hear Dan Naw tiny little creature, hear my words in this moment and to know that he really does hear and he really does care. Is there anyone like this God? In the Psalms we find both transcendence and imminence and so we sing songs like holy, 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 all the saints adore thee. God in three persons, blessed Trinity, we want to sing songs of God's transcendence, His majesty, His holiness, His sovereignty, and yet at the same time we can sing songs like, Your love is all that I need. It's all that I need. God, all I need is You. Why? Because He is both transcendent and He is imminent. And he really does care. How do we sing? First, we sing with joy and sorrow. Second, we sing of God's transcendence with his imminence. A third characteristics. In the Psalms, we find the balance between objective truth and subjective feeling. In the Psalms, we find the balance between objective truth and subjective feeling. The Psalms present objective truth about God. They present objective truth about God because as Scripture, Scripture presents objective propositional truth about who God is. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. 
And yet, would you note that the genre of this book is not just truth, but it is truth put to music. It is not just truth, but it's truth in poetry. It is not just truth, but it's truth that's designed to move our emotions and to transform our affections. It is not just objective truth, it is subjective feeling. It is logic, but it is logic on fire. It is truth that is the source in the form of music. This is the balance we find reflected in the Psalms. And the bottom line here is, brothers and sisters, what we're saying as we observe this from the Psalms is we want you to feel things. Okay, can we just say that? As we look at truth, we want you not just to know things. We want you to feel things. We want your subjective feelings to be moved by objective truth. So that whatever the truth is that we're learning about or singing about or talking about, that you feel emotions which are appropriate to and correspond to that truth. What we're saying is that when we as Christians talk about hell, we should feel something. We should, we should feel something. We should feel horror, terror, fear. We should feel something when we talk about that truth. And when we talk about heaven, we should, we should feel something. We should feel joy, delight. Satisfaction, hope, rejoicing, praise. We shouldn't just talk about truth. Heaven, hell, Jesus, cross. We should feel emotions that are appropriate to those truths. And what we are after as a church is not just truth, but it is the subject emo- subjective emotions which correspond to the truth, because that is the balance we find in the Psalms. And it's not a cultural thing, and it's not something that belongs to a certain part of the church. It is a biblical thing to feel emotions which the truth produces. Jonathan Edwards said this, It is my duty to raise the affections of my hearers as high as I possibly can, provided that they are affected with nothing but truth and with affections that are not disagreeable to the nature of what they are affected with. Edward said, I'm going to teach the Bible, but as I teach the Bible, I'm going to go after their affections. I'm going to go after their emotions. I want people to feel things when I teach them the truth. I don't just want to fill them with more information. I want to raise their affections so if they talk about Jesus and the cross, they should feel something. They should look at the cross and they should feel horror that the Son of God would be pierced through with nails and would die in agonizing, horrible death on our behalf, and yet they should feel Joy and wonder at His love for us. 
and at the satisfaction that was made at the cross. They should feel things. They shouldn't just know things. And the Psalms teach us this. Psalm 32, verse 11. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice. Rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. No, it's feeling things. It's feeling joy, but that feeling is rooted in objective truth. Why does the psalmist say be glad and to rejoice? Because, verse 1, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. The psalmist is saying if you understood the truth of your forgiveness, if you understood that the sins that you have committed your entire life have been all atoned for, and that God has wiped them clean through the sacrifice that He has provided, you would feel something. You would feel something. You wouldn't just know something. The objective truth is that our sins are forgiven. The subjective emotion, the psalmist says, is to rejoice. Rejoice. Psalm 33, verse 1, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. You might be saying, Gosh, this sounds like some you know, praise leader just trying to get people all riled up. No, notice how in the next verse he anchors that call to emotion in objective truth. Why should we shout? Why should we sing? Why should we be happy? Why should we feel these things? Verse 4, For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love. Of the Lord. It's not just sing and rejoice and feel these things. It's there's a reason why your emotions should be moved. And so the psalmist says in Psalm 40, verse 1 I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. God has been good to me. God has been kind to me. God has rescued me. And what is my response? Verse 16. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. It is emotion. He feels... As John Piper said, he feels truly because he understands. He feels duly because he understands truly. He feels emotions because he his emotions are anchored in truth. And I know there's extremes that we can go when we talk about this. I know that some extremes is just, let's just pursue emotion. Let's just get whipped up. Let's just get in a frenzy, let's just, whatever means to get the emotions, that's the goal. I remember in youth camps we used to go to, they just, they sleep deprived us, they kept us up all night singing Jesus songs, and by four o'clock in the morning we were, we were like, I love Jesus, I love Jesus, and the camp counselors were like, that's great, 
we did our job. We, we got them all emotional. And of course, that's not what we're after here. But what we're saying, brothers and sisters, is that if you can speak of the atoning work of Jesus Christ, if you can speak of the Son of God, the perfect one, the holy one, coming to die for your sins. If you can talk of Jesus standing in your place, taking your suffering, bearing your wrath, dying your death, and not feel anything, then do we really understand the things that we're speaking of? We want you to feel things. Cornerstone Bible Church. We want you to feel the weightiness as well as the joyfulness of the truth that we speak of. In the Psalms we find the balance between subjective emotion and objective truth. A fourth characteristic, moving on. And Maybe the characteristic I want to shepherd you through. In the Psalms, we find a balance between internal devotion and external expression. In the Psalms, we find a balance between internal devotion and external expression. Now, just let me walk you through this. I'm I'm going to appeal to your minds here, not so much your emotions. The most important thing when it comes to our worship is not our external expression, it is our internal devotion. In short, the most important thing about our worship is our heart. It is what goes on in the affections of our heart. In fact, worship can be defined as what your heart truly treasures and values on any given day. It's not about how loud you sing or how well you sing, it's about what is going on in your heart. Psalm 15. Matthew 15.8 says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You can express yourself passionately, emotionally, and intensely and fervently, but if your heart is far away, then it isn't genuine worship. The heart is the most important thing when it comes to worship. But just because the heart is the most important thing when it comes to worship does not mean that what we do with our bodies is irrelevant. If I told my wife, um, honey, I love you with all my heart, and yet, at the same time, you never saw me hug my wife, you never saw me touch my wife, you never saw me hold my wife's hand, wouldn't you say that, Dan, I understand what's in your heart, but what's in your heart, although it's the most important thing, is not the only thing. What you do with your body is also important. If I told you I love my children with all my heart, but you ne- I never wanted to hold them, never wanted to kiss them, never wanted to have them run into my arms, never wanted to do anything physical with them, wouldn't you say, Dan, I understand what's in your heart is important, but it's not the only thing that's important. The Bible never portrays physical expression in singing as a style issue, or a cultural issue. 
It simply portrays it as a biblical issue, as a natural expression of praise to God. There would be something wrong if I saw my children and I loved them with all my heart, and yet if I didn't see them and open my arms out to them and say, children, come, I love you, and wrap them in my arms and show physical expression. In a similar way, physical expression in Christian singing is not a cultural issue. It's not reserved for certain segments of the church. It is the joy of every Christian believer to express his love for God, not just verbally and emotionally, but also physically. Now let me walk you through this. What physical expressions does the Bible portray as glorifying to God in the context of Christian singing? In the Psalms, the following physical expressions can be found as expressions of internal heart devotion. Psalm 47, verse 1. Clap your hands, O peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. So clapping is permissible and is a natural expression of our love for God. So is shouting to God. And we would encourage, we would allow for shouting. If you feel like so overwhelmed by the love of Christ in our corporate worship that you want to shout. That is biblical. It's not uh, something for a part of the church. It is for all Christians. Psalm 95, verse 6, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. So not only is clapping permissible and shouting permissible, but also kneeling is permissible. And at times, kneeling, physically kneeling, is appropriate. Um, I remember at one of our men's retreat, as a response to God's word, we all as men physically knelt down. Now, I know there's just a temptation there to say, well, I'm going to kneel in my heart. I'm going to kneel in my mind. In my mind, I'm kneeling. But there is something about physically kneeling before God, which expresses a heart of humility and adoration and awe to God. It's the same way that I don't tell my kids, I'm going to hug you in my heart. I'm going to hug you in my mind, so just think about it. No, physically, I express myself. And as physical beings, we are called to worship God with physical expression. Psalm 134, verses 1 and 2. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. Well, why do you say, lift up your hands to the holy place? Why don't you just do that in your heart? I mean, if the heart's the most important thing, why can't we just express that in our hearts? But why do we actually physically, the psalm says, lift our hands to God? Well, because we are physical creatures. And as physical creatures, the emotions of our heart give way to physical expressions. And it's not a cold, calculated thing. It's not, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a biblical worshiper today, so you're singing and you're like, okay, Psalm 134 commands me to, all right, lift my hands, I got it, I'm a biblical worshiper. All right, I did it. It's not, it's that when you sing about truth and when you talk about truth, like I'm doing right now, what happens? 
when you get excited about something, your hands start moving and your, your, your mouth starts moving and you have emotions and expressions. It's not a calculated thing, but it's just a natural physical expression. And what the Bible's saying here is that there's freedom. There's freedom. It's not obligation. It's not duty. It's freedom. It's as if you told me, Dan, I want you to preach today's sermon and get all emotional, but you're not allowed to move your hands. So I'd be up here and my hands to my... You know, I'm really excited about the Psalms today, but I'd love to express that, but I just can't because I can't move my hands. And doesn't it seem more natural, even when you talk about whatever you're excited about, to have freedom to express those things, not only verbally, not only emotionally, but physically. And the Psalms will simply teach us that there is freedom. There is freedom in this era. It is a biblical freedom. It's not a church culture freedom. It is a biblical freedom. The following actions can bring God glory if they are expressions of a worshiping heart. Clapping, singing, bowing, kneeling, lifting of hands, shouting, playing instruments, even dancing and standing in awe. They're all found in the Psalms. They are not legislated. Physical expression in worship is not, does not make you a good worshiper. A physical expression in worship does not make you a more spiritual worshiper than another worshiper. There are many worshipers who love the Lord with all their heart and do not express themselves physically, and there are Christians living in sin who are very expressive in worship. So we're not saying that this makes you a spiritual worshiper or more spiritual worshiper. All we're saying here is that there's freedom. There's freedom in Christ because these are biblical expressions. They're not cultural expressions. We should not say that physical expressions in worship and singing are the most important part of Christian singing. And yet we shouldn't go to the other extreme and say that these are all just cultural and they have no relevance or significance for today. What we are saying in this point is that we have freedom in Christ to express our worship to God, not only verbally and emotionally, but also physically. And so if you're singing of the cross of Jesus Christ and you are so in awe of that truth that it makes you want to lift your hands or clap or shout or kneel or whatever that is, what the Bible will simply say is you have freedom to express those things. They're legitimate physical expressions. And if fear of man is keeping you from appropriate physical expression, then the gospel says that Jesus has died to free you from that sin so that you would experience the freedom and the joy of worshiping, not only with your heart, but with your entire being. The bottom line is freedom in Christ. Now, I grew up in a conservative church culture. Uh, we sang hymns and conservative praise songs. We didn't even have a drummer or a band. Uh, the first time I saw physical expression in worship was when I went to the John Piper Conference, Desiring God, and I saw people singing of the love of God and raising their hands and clapping and shouting. And I, my first response was, that's weird. I'm a little uncomfortable with this. Why are they doing this? Do they think that this is spiritual? You know, this, that's kind of weird. Um, as I saw more expressions of 
physical expression and worship, my response turned from that's weird to that's nice for them, but I'm not buying in. I'm a old school, uh, you know, conservative guy, and I sing hymns, and I don't need to express myself physically. Recently, only after being thinking through the Word of God have I felt more freedom in expressing myself not only emotionally but physically in worship. Does that make me a more spiritual worshiper? Absolutely not. And do I still have a long way to grow in expression of worship? Absolutely. But the Gospel says that I have the freedom to do that and to grow. Bob Coughlin has written, If I had no other choices, I'd rather be sitting in the midst of a quiet congregation singing rich doctrinal truth than jumping around with a lively congregation belting out shallow man-centered songs. But God never intended for us to have to choose. We're to pursue theological depth and passionate expression. At the end of the day, no one physical expression will ever be adequate to fully express our amazement that God would graciously draw us to himself through the Savior. Our responses will look different at different times, in different churches, and in different cultures, but there's no question that God is worthy of our deepest, strongest, and purest affections, and that our bodies should show it. In the Psalms, we find both objective truth and the expression, physical expression, that gives expression to our internal devotion. And I would just shepherd you and encourage you in this way. Do you see physical expression as, in Christian singing as something that is reserved for a certain segment of the church? Do you see it for the, like I did, like it's for those Piper guys, for those Desiring God guys, that, you know, they desire God, but, you know, I don't know, I believe in the Bible, and so I love God, but I don't desire God. It's like the Desiring God guys, they can do physical expression, but we're in another segment of the church. Do you see it like as, a, as something that is cultural? Or do you see it simply as something that is biblical? That is biblical. This is where the terms charismatic and non-charismatic are at best unhelpful and at worst confusing when used in reference to describe style of singing. Because those terms are terms that describe a position or a view regarding spiritual gifts. And spiritual gifts is a doctrine that is a secondary doctrine. It's a doctrine that we want to think through, but it does not have to do with the essential beliefs that you need to believe to be saved. But what gets confusing is when Christians today apply those terms that are in reference to spiritual gifts and use them to describe a style of singing. And what we would simply say is that that is a legitimate issue and spiritual gifts is an issue to think through. But let's keep what is separate distinct. There is singing and there are spiritual gifts. And let's not use terms that describe spiritual gifts to describe a style of singing. Let's simply say We want what's biblical. We want what's found in the Word of God. Well, last characteristic in the Psalms. The Psalms balance rejoicing and lament, transcendence and imminence, objective truth, 
subject to feeling, internal devotion, and external expression. And lastly, we learn from the Psalms that a biblical biblical singing focuses on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Biblical singing focuses on the person and work of Jesus Christ. What's amazing is how the Psalms, even from an Old Testament point of view, have a clear and repeated focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Psalms preach the gospel from a pre-incarnate point of view, the good news of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. They preach the gospel from the standpoint of anticipation, while we preach the gospel from the standpoint of fulfillment. And Jesus said in Luke 24:44 that these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus says if you look at the Psalms and you read of the Psalms, you will find that they write of me. And that is why, brothers and sisters, we can relate to God in any and every situation of life. That is why we can come to God not only in our joy but in our sorrow. That is why we can come to God not only in our times of thanksgiving but in our times of repentance. That is why we can come to God whether we are filled with faith or whether we are filled with doubt. That is why we can come to God with our sad songs and our fast songs, our minor key songs and our major key songs. The reason why we can come to God in any and every circumstance is because we come to God through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And it is the person and the work of Jesus Christ that the Psalms speak of from the standpoint of anticipation. And so the Psalms at times were directly prophetic and directly spoke of the person and work of Christ. Sometimes they referred to the house of David in general and had a near reference but did not find ultimate fulfillment until the person of Jesus Christ. Sometimes they would have a reference to the immediate context and yet that immediate context would point to something that would not find ultimate fulfillment until Jesus Christ came In all these various different ways, the Psalms point to Christ. And Jesus says that the Psalms spoke of me. And so Psalm 2 points to Jesus Christ as the Son of God who will rule over the nations. Psalm 16 points to the triumphant resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, points to the work of Jesus Christ in which he was forsaken by the Father on our behalf that we may be accepted by God through his perfect atoning work. Psalm 22 points to the scorning and the mocking of Jesus Christ before his crucifixion. Psalm 22.16 points to the piercing of his hands and his feet at the cross. Psalm 55 speaks of the betrayal of Christ. Psalm 68 speaks of the ascension of Christ. Psalm 110 verse 4 is quoted by Hebrews and speaks of the priesthood of Christ. And Psalm 45 speaks of the eternal throne and dominion of Christ. Jesus says, if you look at the songs, you look at the Psalms, you will not only find songs which express a heart of worship in every and any situation of life, but you will find songs which speak of me and of my person and of my work. And it is through the person and the work of Jesus Christ that we come to God and we sing these songs as we go throughout our Christian life. It is because of who He is and what He has done not who we are and what we have done, that we can come in our grief, we can come in our joy, we can come in our faith, we can come in our doubt, because through Christ we are reconciled to God. And He accepts us and welcomes us into His presence.
what can we say at the end of all this but to say with the psalmist in Psalm 150, let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, how merciful you are that you would give us these songs. How gracious you are to condescend to our level. That though you are high and holy, supreme and mighty, that you are also compassionate and gracious, loving and merciful. Thank you for giving us these songs. May they give expression to hearts that are filled with praise as for who you are and all that you have done. And thank you that we come not on our own merits, but through the person and work of Jesus Christ, who died in our place and rose triumphantly from the grave. We give you praise for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.